are going to be uh, continuing on in Acts, and we're getting really close. It's been a, a long journey uh, so far through the whole book of Acts, a couple years, and we're today going to handle all of chapter 27. And so if you've looked ahead, that means we have only chapter 28 left ahead of us. And, you know, it's it's been one of those books, as you work through it, you see a lot of themes that uh, continue to come back and surface time and time again. And uh, especially from a preaching standpoint, you wonder, well, how in the world do you handle some of these things without becoming repetitive? And uh, how do you do that? It's tough. And this morning in chapter 27, we're going to actually look, I, I think we have a, a really awesome passage in front of us. And I have uh, enjoyed studying and preparing for this a lot. Um, it's one of those passages, you look at it on the front end, you're like, hmm, interesting. I wonder how this is going to go. I wonder what kind of sermon do you come up with uh, from here. And um, we've got 44 verses, so it's a long passage. Uh, we're not going to read it. Today we're going to kind of work through it a little bit differently. We're going to kind of cliff note it. And then as we work through the sermon, we'll go back and uh, hit on specific uh, points throughout. And, you know, God has really just challenged me. This is one of those passages you approach that you're you just, you're all open open mind, open heart, open arms. You're like, all right, what? was the Lord going to bring before us? And God did not disappoint in uh, teaching me something and challenging me and encouraging me, so I hope that um, he will use me in a way to uh, do the same for you guys, that your spirits might be encouraged and uh, spurred on as well. So let's uh, go to the Lord in a word of prayer real quick, and then we're going to uh, look to our passage and just kind of work on uh, diving in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege and the opportunity it is to gather this morning as your church. Uh, Lord, thank you for the word uh, that you have given us. Uh, God, you uh, use your word in many different ways to challenge us, to encourage us, to, uh, Lord, convict us. Uh, and this morning, I pray that as we unpack uh, Acts chapter 27, that you would, you would work in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would use me as your servant to communicate your truths very clearly. God, that you would give me the words uh, from you that need to be communicated, the truths uh, from your scriptures. God, that we need to hear. Uh, Lord, I pray that our time would be uh, free from the distractions of our life, uh, that we might focus and give attention to uh, what you have for us in the coming moments. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, Acts 27, you know, if you remember our context, Paul has uh, been in prison for quite some time, a couple of years, and now he's had an opportunity. New Roman leadership had come in, a uh, dude named Festus, and uh, he had an opportunity to share his testimony before King Agrippa. And that's kind of where we leave off. The, the end of chapter 26 is Agrippa saying to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Um, Paul's a pretty innocent guy, but he had appealed to Caesar earlier on because he was getting tired of having to go back and do this re recurring thing with the Jews. And this morning, we're going to start to see that journey take place, right? Uh, Paul sails for Rome. That's what the heading is in chapter 27. You can start for my Bible. It might be similar in yours. And uh, they set sail for Italy. And I'll just kind of walk you through the passage a little bit rather than reading every verse. And uh, the first portion of it is Phil, he's got a, a map to throw up there. So they're taking off from, oh, I just did something, press the wrong button. A uh, little city down here, this is Caesarea. That's where uh, Paul had been and been spending some time there. And they set sail. And the first, uh, you know, uh, eight verses or so, have, are taking place on this red line right around here, okay? And they're going to find their way to Fair Havens. And so far, the travels have been pretty good, without event, 
things are, are going well. And uh, that's where things start to get a little interesting. Paul warns the sailors while they're in Fairhaven and says, listen, uh, the feast is almost over, which to, to give you a time standpoint, that means they're in the late September, early October kind of time frame. Fall is coming to pass and winter and that late fall season is a very, very dangerous time to travel in the Mediterranean. Uh, many ships uh, wouldn't even sail after the month of October. So they're getting into this season now where the weather is going to be a challenge. And Paul warns the, the sailors and the Roman guards who have him under the leadership of Julius, a, the leader of the cohort, and says, listen, we should not leave. They had plans to go to Phoenix. They wanted to go from Fair Havens to Phoenix, a, a short sail. And he says, we should, we should probably hunker down and stay here. Well, they ignored Paul. And they decided, uh, now we're getting into uh, verse 13, they take off uh, here in late fall, and you can see they make it almost, you know, roughly according to the map, which may not be entirely uh, true with the curves on it, but they made it uh, just a portion of the way, and then a storm struck, which is called a northeaster, uh, came down off the land, and it took the ship, and it pushed them well off course. They're now down into the Mediterranean Sea. Um, in the scripture, it says that, uh, they, they were driven along, they got rid of the sails, and they just let the storm take them. And as they come on, uh, we see in verse uh, 20, it says, When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So there, that's them somewhere right in this region here. Um, the storm had come, and you know, to us, we read that, and it's like, well, of course, the, no sun, no stars, there was a storm, but now that's a pretty important thing because that was hugely uh, critical for their navigation in ancient sailing. Um, they relied on the stars and the sun and the moon and the stuff to figure out where they were and to uh, navigate. So without that, what, what Luke's recording here is he's saying, we were lost and we had no hope. We, we basically knew we were, we were going to die. And then Paul chimed in and he says, listen, um, an angel of the Lord uh, appeared to me, an angel of God, and he said that we're all going to be saved. I, I'm supposed to go and testify in Rome, so God's going to save all of us. And, you know, that's great. Uh, we, we hear that and we're like, oh, cool. But imagine being the sailors or the Romans when that uh, took place. And you're like, all right, here's this, this guy, Paul. He's, a, he's our prisoner, and he's saying that this God that he serves is promising to save us. But all hope to us is lost. We're stuck in the storm. We can't control the ship. We have no idea where we are. We're without hope, all right? And, and this, is gonna, this is brutal. And so what they uh, eventually did, they, they took a sounding. This is when they're uh, right out by Clauda here. It's a small island. And they took a sounding, which if you don't know anything about ancient sailing, which I didn't have any idea before this week, um, a sounding, basically what they had was these strings uh, with a weight on the bottom. And so they dropped, they thought they were getting close to land. That's how they'd figure out how shallow the waters were. And so they had done this and figured out over a couple of drops, a couple soundings, that um, they were getting close to land. So they were afraid they were going to hit. And so uh, they cast some anchors out the back of the ship, trying to kind of slow themselves down. And when they did that, you know, now they're, they're stopping, they're slowing down. And some of the guys had this genius plan. They're like, all right, you know what, we're going to, we're going to tell everyone, we got this lifeboat on the, on the ship, we're going to tell everyone that we're going to go drop anchors on the front of the ship also. Um, when really what they started to do was drop that lifeboat. Their intent was to ditch the whole thing. The sailors were going to get out of there, save their own lives, let everybody else die, and 
themselves. Well, Paul, I imagine through divine intervention, realized what was going on. He said to Julius, the commander of the cohort, he said, unless these men stay on the ship, uh, you cannot be saved. And so the Romans, you imagine this for the sailors, they're like, that's it. <laughs> Cut the ropes, lifeboat gone. And you imagine the sailors at that point, come on, you're like, really? Why? Why have you done that? That was our one chance, our one shot at surviving this. You just got rid of it. There goes our lifeboat. Now we're stuck on this ship, and who knows what's going to happen to it. We're going to run aground. We're gonna, the ship might break up. Who knows? This is terrible news. And eventually they, they work themselves over, and uh, we learn that they come to this little bay over here by Malta, and that's where uh, they, they realize things are, are turning up, and they're like, that's where we could run ashore. So they start to uh, run in there. And the ship runs ashore on a sandbar. And the front of the ship is stuck, and the back of the ship's being broken up by the waves. And imagine this, 276 dudes on this ship, and, and the whole thing's getting torn up behind you. And they're like, what, what are we going to do? So they, they decide they're going to they're gonna jump. And uh, some of the soldiers had wished to kill all the prisoners that were with them because it was a big deal for the Romans to lose a prisoner. And so they're like, if we just kill them, then we don't have to worry about them uh, getting away free. But Julius, good old leader of the cohort, says, no, we're going to keep them alive, keep Paul alive. So in the end, uh, it, it came true that God kept all 276 men on that ship alive. And they uh, found themselves over in Malta. Um, I'm sure not, not at all how they planned to get there, uh, but God has moved them there uh, this morning. And so you look at a passage like that, and you're like, well, what in the world do you, what kind of sermon do you have from there? You could talk about, you know, we've got storms in our lives that we have to endure, but are we on, if we were in a sailing town, we might get that a little bit better. Like, yeah, we're out in the ships, we're, we're sailing along, and, you know, we've got to worry about those storms that we're going to face. Um, and, you know, here's the reality. We, we could address that, but the storms that we face in our lives, the troubles we face, there's no guarantee that God's going to, bring us through safely as we would put it that doesn't mean that god's not working for our good and in his good uh, sovereign plan but you know if you think back to shadrach meshach and abednego with uh, the fire what did they say They're, they said our god can save us but even if he doesn't we will not worship your gods right so it's we could say well we've got storms and god's going to deliver us from those storms but God may not deliver us from those storms. How many people have we seen through Scripture whose lives were not preserved, but God was still working through it? How many people have we heard of uh, in, uh, in the world today who's, who are doing God's work, but whose lives were not preserved? Uh, that doesn't mean that God is not in control. So, so what do you do with this? And uh, we're going to look at a few things that I think God is really communicating. And our second point today is going to be what I, I call my wow moment. I think I've mentioned I normally have a wow moment uh, when I'm studying scripture. And the second point's like, whoa, this is awesome. So we'll get there. Uh, but before we even dive into the outline, something that is just cool uh, from this passage, I don't think Luke intended it to be written for these things, is uh, back in the late 1800s, there was a guy um, whose uh, name was, I got a, find it here real uh, real quick uh, sir william mitchell ramsey and he was a scottish archaeologist and he started out with the intent to kind of disprove scripture and so what he did is he kind of went on an axe journey now imagine getting to do that, that to us that'd be like a, a great vacation a study thing to go journey through the places that you see in the book of acts well 
Uh, Ramsey decides to do that with the intent of disproving it because there wasn't a whole lot of information on Asia Minor. And he's like, you know what, I'm going to go and basically this whole, this whole story that Luke has written, there's going to be so much uh, false information that we're going to debunk kind of the whole thing. And he goes and he visits all these places and starts to realize that, wow, you know, this thing's a little more airtight. And especially in chapter 27 here, um, many historical scholars even look at this passage as one of the most detailed and specific passages as it relates to ancient sailing that there are in any historical records. And it's right here in the Bible. Isn't that pretty cool that, you know, God has put that? And you look at the way that uh, Luke records um, the different instruments they were using, how they were doing stuff. And those are like the, oh, my goodness, you know, the, the details. Sometimes some of us are like looking at details, you know, like, get on with it, right? But God uses those things in some pretty awesome ways. So this is what uh, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey said as a result of his studies. He said, further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it there in Acts. You may uh, press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. You cannot find something wrong with what Luke has recorded throughout the book of Acts, especially here in Acts 27. So Sir William Ramsey went into this not as a believer, and uh, through his conclusions from his studies, he would become a Christian, and he would go on and write many books in defense for Scripture. I just think, again, I don't think Luke wrote this chapter and even the whole book of Acts necessarily for Sir William uh, Mitchell Ramsey, but just a neat way how God used uh, this passage and, and this whole book uh, to do some great things. So um, let's, uh, let's jump into our outline this morning, and we're going to look at this shipwreck and the stories surrounding it. And, and our first point is going to be that Paul's shipwreck, we're gonna, the outline's going to kind of work together to give you an overarching statement or a sentence that is a big idea uh, for the day. So we're going to break it down, and we'll get it kind of as we go. The first one is Paul's shipwreck is part of God's sovereign plan. Throughout all the book of Acts, we've seen God working providentially. A, um, a couple weeks ago, probably more than a couple weeks ago now, we were in Acts chapter 23. And that's a great time where we step back and we're like, wow, what a picture of God's providence, right? That was when the first plot by the Jews was put against Paul's life. And uh, God worked it so that his nephew heard about it, informed him, and then he was taken into the Roman custody as protection. We see God's providence there. We see God working providentially through all these things. And in these 44 verses, we see God continuing to work providentially. And since we've spent a lot of time on that, I don't want to... Uh, belabor this, but I do want to focus on it because it is true. Uh, Luke is, in this portion of, of Scripture, giving us the next scene. And I've said this uh, in some of the other sermons I've preached at Sugar Grove, but um, the book of Acts, I think of TV shows, right? They, you got different uh, a different episode coming out each week. That's kind of how we've been working through Acts. Now, there are TV shows that have episodes that are pretty standalone, like you can watch one episode by itself and, and you're fine. You know, you could uh, get the context. You don't have to have all the backstory. But then there's these uh, TV shows that are called serial episode TV shows. And um, basically what they are is a continuous plot that unfolds in sequential episode 
by episode fashion, all right? So you have to start at the beginning in order to understand where you're at three quarters of the way through. That's kind of what the book of Acts is. And I think of, you know, uh, TV shows like Friends. Uh, that would be one uh, that you're probably familiar with. Uh, Friends is a little bit more standalone. Now, there's some common themes and plots that go throughout, uh, but all in all, you could watch one episode and, and be fine in and of itself. But if you've heard of a TV show uh, called 24, uh, Jack Bauer, you know, uh, counter-terrorist unit, uh, it chronicles this 24-hour uh, time period where they're working to stop these terrorist attacks. And you start at 12 a.m. and you finish at 12 a.m. the next day, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to pick up at, uh, you know, one in the afternoon. You're like, well, how did we get to where we're at? Um, that's a lot of what, what Acts is, is we're seeing things that build on each other, right? Stories that fit in uh, where we're at. And so we look at it, and it would not make a lot of sense. You know, Paul was in Caesarea, like you don't have to throw the map back up there, but over on that eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, it wouldn't make, we'd be really lost and confused if we had said, oh, Paul's there, he had this trial, and then bam, he's in Rome. You'd be like, wait a minute, how'd he get there? When did he get there? What's going on? And uh, that's where you know, Luke's doing a great job from a textual standpoint and saying, listen, I'm telling you a story that is how we're getting uh, from Caesarea to Rome. And there's this storm that came in, and this storm was not outside of God's providence. And we're going to kind of um, dive deeper into God's providence in the storm as we work through our message this morning. Um, and so just from a, a textual standpoint, it's really awesome when you read through the book of Acts and see God working in his own ways and you see the story coming together, not missing pieces. We have the full story and what an awesome uh, uh, benefit that we have. Now, um, this shipwreck was part of God's providential plan that he was working, but it was also a demonstrating salvation to unbelievers. And this is where I think God's providence is really seen uh, coming full, full force. And so I'm going to break this down, and this is that, like, this is awesome, right? You look at Acts 27, this is so stinking cool, and you just want to be like, our God is so awesome, so creative, so powerful, you're like, amazing. You're just in awe of how God would work in such a way. Now, we have Paul with a couple of his friends, Luke's obviously there as believers, they're with a whole bunch of people who are unbelievers, who are taking them in this ship across the sea, and this storm hits. And I believe that this storm and the experiences they have really are a picture, a physical picture, just like, you know, Acts 23 was a physical picture of God's providence. This is a good physical picture of salvation uh, for these unbelievers to see. Now, uh, the first part where we see this is that our sins leave us without hope. Our sins leave us without hope. Going back to verse 20, that's when Luke says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They had no hope. All right, And you'll notice all through verses 14 uh, through 20, uh, we see the fact that they made the decisions to go and to leave. They could have easily stayed in uh, Fair Havens for the winter. They didn't feel it was a good spot. They wanted to get over to Phoenix. Well, they had the warning um, from Paul to, to not go. Stick, stick out where you're at. Uh, stay where we're at. 
and uh, they decided to get up and leave. And through this, the storm comes, and they're left without hope. A pretty amazing, they're left in this dire situation where they're at, they're at life's end in their standpoint. And from a spiritual standpoint, that's physically for them, but from a spiritual standpoint, that's what our sin leaves us. We're left without hope. We're left without any uh, possibility of salvation because of our sin. James 2.10 says that forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. You're like, wow, that seems kind of harsh. You know, that seems super harsh. So why, why would it be the case that if we break one point of the law, that we would be guilty as if we had broken the entire law? Well, in verse 11, he goes on and explains, because it's not about the action that you did. It's not about the law that you broke but it's about the perfect and holy God who you sinned against. That's why we, we serve a holy God, that when we have a blemish on us, we have been in totality blemished by our sin. So we are left without hope from a spiritual standpoint, even from the smallest, most minute sin that we could possibly commit. The white lie that you told your spouse this morning or that, that you didn't clean your room when mom and dad said to. That, if that were the only sin that you ever committed in your life, that is enough to leave you without spiritual hope. You would be completely dead in your transgressions. Without hope of salvation. And the sins that we commit, they are our fault. Just like the sailors, you know, they're getting a great picture here. They put themselves in this situation. They said, we're going to get on this ship. We're going to risk it. Okay? We know we're aware of the dangers, but you know, we're going to risk it. We're going to try to get right over there to uh, Phoenix. It's a short sail. We'll be fine. We're going to do this. Their decisions put them in harm's way there. Now, God's working providentially through that, absolutely, but they were responsible for their choice to go. Just as you and I are each responsible for our own sins, we ourselves have sinned against the Holy God. We have put ourselves in a position where we have no hope. And these unbelieving people who are transporting these Christians, um, who are preaching this gospel message of salvation, are now getting a first-hand experience. They're seeing, in a physical way, what is true of their spiritual reality. They are lost and desperate for help. And you move on from there, and we're hopeless, and we cannot save ourselves. Our own efforts cannot save us. That's the next part that they see, right? Because what is their, their response? This storm's a brewing. They're finding out themselves in trouble. They're chucking cargo off the ship, which that's a big deal in and of itself because there goes their livelihood. Now they're, just, they're in it just for their life now. They're chucking stuff off the ship. They're doing what they have to do. They try lowering the lifeboat and taking matters into their own hands. After Paul has already told them, listen, God is going to save us. He didn't say, you're going to save yourselves. He said, my God, whom I serve, has promised that none of us will lose our lives. And I trust that things will come out to be exactly as he said they will. And they say, and what makes sense to themselves, we're going to take matters into our own hands. That's great. I'm glad that your God's going to save us. That, cool. You know what? Maybe that's what you believe. But 
I'm looking at the situation and saying, we got a lifeboat, our ship's in trouble, I'm getting out of here. And isn't that what we do spiritually? Our natural response is to look at our sins and we say, uh, listen, we have a problem. Our sin is a problem. We're responsible for that problem. I committed these sins. And our natural human response is to say, if I caused this problem, I need to fix this problem. And we take it on ourselves to try to do whatever it is that we can do to earn our own salvation. But Paul tells them in this passage, he, he says in verse 31, he said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men say in the ship, you cannot be saved. You Go ahead. Take it, take it in your own hands. If you're going to go try your own thing, destruction's coming. You're going to die. You're going to die, and everyone else with us, they're going to die. God has said, stay on the ship. He's going to save you. So in a spiritual sense, God has said, you, you cannot save yourself. There is no amount of good that can outweigh the evil that you have done. That little white lie, that one little sin, even if it were just that, and the rest of your life, you live perfectly. And just that one thing, the weight of that, if you were to put it in a, in a balance, would never compare to any good that you could possibly do. You cannot do it. You cannot go to church enough. You cannot give enough. You cannot volunteer enough. You cannot say the nicest things enough. You cannot do anything. You cannot help other people. You cannot do enough good that will possibly bring you to salvation. You cannot do enough good that will ever blot out the weight of that wrong. Just as those men on the ship were, were told, listen, you do your own thing, it's going to lead you to destruction. If you try to earn your salvation spiritually, it will lead you to your destruction. And as Christians, we take that and we're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. That's what we believe, right? But it's craziness to think about that. Have you ever stopped and thought about what it is that we believe as Christians and how crazy it sounds to the world? It's insane when you, when you spell it out. We believe that there is a perfect and holy God who we can't see or touch, who doesn't speak to us audibly right now. And we believe that we have sinned against this perfect God, that he sent his uh, his son to die on the cross. He raised him from the dead and to solve this problem of sin that if we just believe we're going to be saved from our sins and spend eternity in heaven, do you, do you hear how crazy that sounds? But that's the heartbeat of the whole thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of The gospel makes no sense. The cross makes no sense to the world. That's why it takes a miraculous work of God in a person's heart to open their eyes to the truth. That we might respond in faith and see the reality put before us. So there is nothing, no good whatsoever that you that your neighbor, that your friends at school, that your co-worker, there is no good that they could possibly do to find salvation. But in a spiritual sense, we're all sitting on this ship. We're all facing death. And they're, they're the ones who are the, the sailors right now who will say, I, I'm going to do my own thing. I can earn it. 
And we're the ones who have the gospel. We're the ones who have the truth from the scripture that says, you can't. It's going to lead to your destruction. There's, you can't be moral enough. You can't be good enough for a perfect God to look on you and say that you are righteous. Therefore, our trust must be in Christ alone. They are nothing of those good works that we do. They are nothing to grant us salvation. God promised that uh, none of the men on board that ship were going to die. God promised that he was going to save them. And we're going to see that, that God is the one who's going to make that possible at the end of the day. He's true to his word, but it's only in, in their hope in God that they're saved. And Paul speaks from a great reference of hope. He says, listen, God has called me to Rome. He takes confidence in that promise. God's, God's doing something. If he's called me to, to, to testify in Rome, by golly, I believe that I'm going to testify in Rome. This storm's nothing. I'm sure Paul had heard the story of Jesus calming the seas. He's like, listen, God will get me there. If he's calling me to it, I'll, he'll bring me to it. He relies on the promises from the angel that uh, came and spoke for God and said that he was going to save all of them. Paul trusted in those promises. That his hope, our hope, our trust must only be in Christ. Those soldiers had to quickly come to terms. And in the, I imagine in that split second when Paul said, if they, if they get off this ship, we're all dead. They had to decide in that point, all right, are we going to take what makes sense to us in a physical representation? Yeah, it would make sense to get on the boat. Or do we trust this God and cut the ropes? Thank goodness they cut the ropes, right? Thank goodness they did that. Our trust, in a spiritual standpoint, can only be found in Christ. You can lean on your family. You can lean on any other uh, false god that you want to come up with that makes you feel better, but it is going to lead to your destruction. You will find no salvation in it whatsoever. You'll find no salvation in being a weekly church attender if you do not have Christ. Our trust is in Christ alone because we are stained individuals. Our stains cannot be removed by what we, we, we can accomplish. Any good that we can do cannot remove the stain of sin in our lives. So it took an absolutely perfect sacrifice. And that's where the Old Testament is beautiful, right? When they were given the commands to give sacrifices, they were to bring uh, animals without blemish. The first fruits the best that they had, the absolute best. And those sacrifices were good in temporary form, but there was a more perfect sacrifice that was coming, and that was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the true Passover lamb. He was the sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. He gave up his perfect life so that we might have life, that we could place our faith and trust in him, that we could have salvation and victory over sin and death. Praise God. Our trust is in Christ because he, unlike us, was perfect. He lived that perfect life and he went to the cross. And at the cross, he bore, think about this, he bore the full wrath of God against all of humanity upon himself. 
the most unjust act of humanity ever committed was sending Jesus to the cross. A perfect, undeserving person to be killed. He bore God's wrath on our behalf. He took the punishment that you deserve on himself. There is no greater act of love than that. That ought to spur you on. Yeah. What a God. You doubt that God loves you? Go to the cross. You're struggling? Go to the cross. The greatest act of love that we've seen took place there. And, and the beautiful thing is, if Jesus just died on the cross that, and he stayed in the grave, he's no different than you and I, another man dead. But he conquered the grave. He rose again on that third day. He defeated sin and death that we could have life. And, and here these, these soldiers and these sailors are getting a very physical, uh, real-life kind of picture of what this teaching that Paul has is, is been proclaiming, this hope that he has, the, the very thing that he's on trial for. They're getting to see this, this picture of it firsthand of this salvation and it's in Christ, it's in God that they had hope for salvation. It's in Christ that we have hope for our spiritual salvation. What a picture it is. And then we see that God is faithful to save. At the end of the day, it says all 276 persons in the ship, they, every single person made it to land safely. Some floated in on pieces of the ship. Some swam in. They all made it safe. God showed up. He fulfilled his promise. God said, I'm going to save, and he saved. All right. God says that we place our trust in Jesus Christ, and only in Jesus Christ, not in our own merits, not in our own good, not in the good of other people, not in the prayers of other people, but only on Jesus Christ. He is faithful to save. He will save. And this is, this is where it gets real, because it's easy to preach this and hear this and talk this in church. All right? We, we get that. We're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's all in Christ. It's all in Christ. But, but listen, what is, it, what is it that Paul says that we preach? Going back to 1 Corinthians 1, he doesn't say we preach Christ and morality. He says we preach Christ crucified. So the question isn't always just for us in the church. We can hear messages like this and say, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I've heard that. I get it. But what message are we preaching to the world? When we go out into our workplace, when we go out into our neighborhoods, what do we preach? What is it the world hears us say? Do they hear us preaching Christ crucified? It's all on Christ. Trust Christ. It's only Christ. Turn to Christ. Christ died for you. He rose again. Trust in Jesus Christ. Or do they hear the church sometimes start to preach this alternate gospel, this false gospel, that in a sense, turn your life around. Jesus is part of that, but turn your life around. Do we preach morality with the cross? Fix yourself. Fix yourself, and then you're a Christian. Or does the equation go, you're a Christian, and God fixes you? Do we preach to our lost neighbors? Do we preach to our lost co-workers and friends in school? Do we say that, listen, it is not about being good. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. You know, the, the heartbreaking thing, all right, this last week... Um, 
uh, there was a, a teacher at Harder Middle School, one of Cane, the Caneland Middle School, who passed away unexpectedly. And this teacher, uh, many of the students and the staff, Mario and I were there for a couple days helping with some counseling, and um, all, these, all these people kept saying, she was such a good person. She was such a good person. And I don't know, maybe, maybe she was saved, maybe she wasn't, I, I'm not sure. But she faced death, and what we know to be true is that she had to give an account for her life to God. There are plenty of quote-unquote good people. The goodness of who we are is not holy and righteous in the eyes of God. So do we take that, and do we go, and do we preach a, a, a gospel of of morality, of good living to the world that says you got to be good to be a Christian? Now, we don't want to preach the opposite and say don't do anything good, just be bad, keep doing whatever evils you're doing and who cares? But the true gospel message is going to come as trust in Christ, pleading, pleading with the lost that they would trust in Christ. Do we preach Christ crucified? Those men on the ship, they had this opportunity to experience their physical salvation from the storm. As believers, we've experienced spiritual salvation. And we're living a life with the Lord. But we have this opportunity Every single day, we rub shoulders with people who are lost. Do we have a burden for them that would say, let me tell you about Jesus? When was the last time you opened your mouth and said something to someone about Jesus? Let your actions preach the gospel, but let your mouth preach the gospel too. We got to open our mouths. People got to hear they got to know the truth. And God uses us as his messengers to do that. And so the last thing that Paul shipwrecked, first it's part of God's sovereign plan, uh, which demonstrates salvation to unbelievers, and lastly it validates the gospel message. It validates the gospel message. Paul is on trial, as he has testified many times, for the hope that he has in the resurrection of the dead. There was this Jesus person, remember Festus uh, explaining it to Agrippa, there was some Jesus who was dead, now Paul says he's alive. Paul's on trial for the gospel. And so the the really neat thing here is they found themselves in this situation and, and God spoke to Paul and said, listen, I'm going to save you guys. And what did Paul do? He went and he told the whole, the sailors and said, listen, God is going to save us. He's promised that none of us are going to die. Okay, so what happens when the end comes and they, they all make it to the beaches and they're all alive. I'm sure they do the count off. We got all 276 of us. What do you think they remember in that moment? Wait a minute. This Paul said that the God that he believed in, that he trusted in, was going to do this. He did. And suddenly you got to imagine that there was hope showing up. They were like, all right, it... If his God came through on this, then I, I'm sure 
there must be some truth to this other gospel that, that Paul's preaching about this resurrection, this Jesus. There must be some truth to that too. Right? Just like in Mark, I believe it's in Mark 3 or Mark 4, um, uh, Jesus is uh, talking to a, a paralytic and he says, your sins have been forgiven. And what is he accused of? Well, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, listen, to, to show you that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. You can't see a physical representation of that. But Jesus says to prove it to you, get up and walk. This man who couldn't walk is now walking. I have the power to forgive. That's what Jesus says. And here we are. We have Jesus validated the message of forgiveness with a miracle. I believe God's validating the gospel message with a miracle. These men are in awe. All hope was gone. And here we are saved. God, Paul's God has saved us. It validates the gospel. So I want to challenge, challenge us with this. To live gospel-centered lives. That in the triumphs and in the trials, on the mountaintops and in the valleys, that your life preach the gospel. The way you suffer would preach the gospel. The way that you succeed in life would preach the gospel. That people would see you and not just see you, but see Christ. That they would hear about Christ. That they would know Christ. That you would have opportunities upon opportunities. And they're there, trust me. Right? You know it. Okay? You know those guilty conscious moments where you're like, man, I should have spoken up for Jesus right there and I didn't. They're all over the place. Speak up this week. All right? Be a messenger for Christ. Let your life be a picture of the gospel. You were once lost and now you are found. You were once dead in your sins, and now you've been made alive. Let people see that. Let people understand what God has done in your life. We preach Christ crucified, period. That's it. Christ alone. Let that be your gospel cry, Christ alone.